All right. Good morning. Thank you. Let's bring it in. Awesome. If you need a Bible, we have a few available for your use. If you don't own one, you can just take it home and keep it and read it. That's the only condition. You got to read it. You can't take it as a you know souvenir or a memento that you've attended church today. All right. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, some of you I don't know super well. You probably don't know me either. Uh, my name is Andy. I am Pastor Scott's youngest son. Uh, I wouldn't say his favorite, but certainly the youngest. And um, as I already told you, my dad and mom are away this weekend uh, visiting my brother, who's probably the real favorite son. And so, um, and so I'm here uh, with you guys. So um, more importantly, God's here with us, and, and, and he's given us his word. So uh, we're going we're gonna to dig into the Old Testament this morning, uh, but before we do that, let's just uh, go before the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless the preaching of his word and teach us uh, as his people. So, Father God, we're here this morning, um, Lord, with a, with a heart that you have opened up to receive your word. Lord, it is your word that goes in to purify, to change, Lord, to do its magnificent work. Lord, it is sometimes a blunt object smashing down massive walls. And Lord, sometimes it comes in so carefully like a surgeon's scalpel, peeling back a layer of uh, our soul or our spirit that needs the light of the gospel. And so Lord, as we read the Old Testament, may it be new in us. Lord, may it make us new. Lord, may the timelessness of your word draw us to a greater relationship with you, Lord, a closer walk with you, God. Lord, may the grace of repentance and reconciliation be present here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, praise God. I'm excited to be here. If you have a Bible with you, let's open it up to Jeremiah chapter 4. Um, Jeremiah chapter 4. And uh, as, I've, as I've done each time I've shared out of the book of Jeremiah... Uh, I'm going to do my best to cover Jeremiah 4 through Jeremiah chapter 6. So we're going to take about three chapters here, and we're going to trace out certain themes that we see present, and then from that, uh, hopefully draw some application for our lives today. So Jeremiah chapter 4, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 5, because we left off at Jeremiah 4.4 the last time I was able to share with you. And as you're finding your way there... And, and maybe you're dusting off the Old Testament a little bit because you don't spend as much time back there on your own as you may do the New Testament. I want you to enter into a thought experiment with me. This is uh, something that I think our creative and imaginative energy can really help us with. Right now, Sunday morning, I want you to imagine that you are the pilot of an aircraft. Are there any actual pilots in the room, by the way? Okay, good. So I can make up anything and it all is good. we're all going to be in this together. Nobody's going to be like, that's not accurate. Okay. So imagine you're piloting an aircraft. You have all of your instrumentation in front of you. You have all these like little, you know, and I'm drawing completely off of fiction and movies, okay? I've never actually seen the inside of a real aircraft. Uh, cockpit. I've, seen, I've been in an airplane. I've just never seen the, the actual cockpit. So you have all these like little uh, circular, you know, dials with like, you know, uh, like lines and arrows, and it's telling you direction, it's telling you altitude, speed, it's indicating to you how and where the aircraft is going. And you're the pilot, okay? You're flying this thing. You're 100% responsible for its direction, for its speed, for the turns that you do or do not make. And as you're flying along, you're using your instrumentation to help you navigate the sky. And as you're going along, maybe you have it on autopilot, you're cruising along, it's just, you know, flying as usual, if that's a thing. And then you hear like a little beep, beep, beep. Now, in a movie, what would that indicate? Bad, thank you. Somebody's watched a movie, yeah. When you hear, when you hear the beeping in the cockpit in any movie, it is always bad, right? Am I right? Like, they're cruising along, and then, like, you know, if it's an alien invasion movie, every single time the radar's spinning, that little green line spinning, 
and then there's like nothing on the radar, and then all of a sudden like a little green dot appears. And they're like, what's the green dot? And then there's like a million green dots. And then they look outside, and there's like an alien invasion, and Los Angeles is getting, you know, destroyed, and the rest of America's like, yeah. <laughs> is there anybody from California here? Good. Oh, sorry, sorry, bro. That was totally a joke. We love, we love LA. So you hear the beeping. And at first, it's, you know, sort of infrequent. It's just like, beep, beep. And, and, and you're, the, you're the pilot. You're, you're steering the aircraft. You have a decision to make. You either start to assess the dials and the instrumentation to figure out why there's like a little alarm going off, or you can ignore it and be like, ah, oh, man, I've done this a thousand times. I'm just going to, I'm good. Okay, now bear with me on the analogy. I know this is a drawn out one, but like, you know, it's fun. It's interesting. It's pseudo movie. So then there's that little beep, and then there's a little bit more of a cadence. Now it's like beep, 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 beep. Now what's happening in the movie? It's getting closer. And then it starts going beep, 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 beep. And then what does that mean in the movie? We're all going to die. And then it's like beep, 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 beep. And then the movie ends. It fades to black, and church is over. No. Best sermon of all time. What I'm trying to convey through this very poor analogy is, is literally Jeremiah is the beep. Okay, Jeremiah is the beep. I want you to know something uh, that you may not know. Uh, the word in Hebrew that is often used to describe an act of repentance, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to totally butcher the Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, right? Okay. I think the word is pronounced shub. And it's to mean, the meaning of the word is simply to turn, right? To turn, to go in a different direction. It can be used in a lot of different ways, but it's interesting to note in the chronology of the prophets, Jeremiah is the last prophet before the destruction of Jerusalem. For the final 40 years, he was the one who was the beep in the cockpit. He was the one warning the people. The significance of this is that in the totality of all of the prophets, Jeremiah uses this Hebrew word to turn over a hundred times. This is twice as much as any of the other prophets. He was the one who was most focused on the idea of turning. He uses it specifically in the context of an actual act of repentance in a covenant relationship with God almost 50 times. What I'm driving at is God in his extreme mercy, after 460 years of the kingdom of Israel, from its high to its impending destruction, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet, and he's warning, and he's warning, and he's warning. And at first, the cadence of the warning was maybe a little bit less pronounced. It was just like a little beep, beep. And a prophet would appear, he'd have a message, beep, ignored. Years go by. And then a warning, beep, beep, and ignored. And then he sends more prophets, and it gets a little bit louder, beep, beep, beep until Jeremiah comes onto the scene, and it is so loud and so pronounced. God is literally at the doorstep of ending the kingdom, and he sends Jeremiah to call the people back to himself. The, the totality of the message this morning is that God is long-suffering, and the degree of his long-suffering, as we learn throughout all of Scripture, and we'll go to a couple verses here at the end, is that we might repent. It's that we would repent. Is that we would turn from our wicked ways and follow his word. And the thing that's fascinating to me, and the whole reason why we, we started this study of Jeremiah, is Jeremiah was preaching to a nation. And what's true on the macro level, right, nations and people groups at large, is true on a micro level on the individual basis. What God declares to the people of Israel thousands of years ago through Jeremiah is true for you and me today in the 21st century here in Ithaca, New York. 
okay? And so what I'm hoping to do is we're going to go through this and we're going to look at a few different themes. One, we're going to see the certainty of judgment because God's character demands moral resistance to sin. God, of his own nature, is compelled to resist and judge sin. It is an abhorrence to him. God hates sin. We're going to address that because it's an unescapable reality of the prophet's message. God hates sin and God is opposed to sin. Secondly, we'll look at the, the, the condition of the people. After 460 years, there was a moral rot at the heart of the culture. And we're going to look at that. And then we're going to look also at God's response to these two things. And then from that, hopefully, we draw some connection. So as we go through this, again, I'm not going to necessarily read every single verse from Jeremiah 4, 5 through 6.30, but we will highlight a few verses as we go through this in an effort to highlight the themes. So if you would, with your eyes in the Bible here now, Jeremiah chapter 4, understanding this is the beep, this is the warning. Jeremiah is pronouncing the certainty of something imminent. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 5. He says, as God has given him, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from the thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. This is Jeremiah describing the coming judgment from the north. At this time in history, the kingdom that God will ultimately use to fulfill this prophecy is Babylon. Babylon will come from the north, and it will invade Jerusalem, and it will destroy the city. <clears throat> the certainty of judgment will come to pass. What God has said and what God has declared will be true. And so there is a certainty there. Uh, again, going further along, uh, he references here in chapter 4, verse 11, At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow, or cleanse, a wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Jeremiah goes on. Scan with me now on to, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 20. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. Verse 27. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation. Go with me to chapter 5. The theme of imminent judgment. Verse 6, therefore a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. Verse 10, go up through her vine, rose and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches for they are not the Lord's. Go with me now, verse 15. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, verse 18, I will, might, I will not make a full end of you. 
Go with me to chapter 6. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet, verse 1, the trumpet in Tekoa, and raise a signal in Beth Hakarem, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. And you could go through the other portions of these chapters and you could pick out additional references to the certainty of God's impending judgment. So before we move forward, let's address this immediate theme. We're presented with a reality that the prophet Jeremiah is proclaiming judgment upon a people who had rejected God. Over 460 years of kingdom existence, he had sent prophet after prophet after prophet, warning after warning after warning. There were times where the nation responded and turned, and then there were times where they ignored and persisted. But in either case, God is bringing judgment. The certainty of judgment in Scripture is without dispute. Think about the flood. Ironically, and I've said this many times when I preach, for some reason we have turned the flood into like a cute children's story. It is a horrifying consideration that in Genesis chapter 6, God looking upon the men that he, the, the world that he had created and humanity that he brought into being for his own good pleasure, and he says their heart was wicked continually before him, and it grieved him that he had made man. And so God's response to the unrepentant re, uh, rejection of man and, and their unrepentant continuation in sinfulness was that God says, I see the wickedness of your heart, and I'm going to bring judgment. We have another famous example of God's judgment when uh, we have the Sodom and Gomorrah incident. These are two certain examples of God's judgment. We then have the New Testament, which tells us that the arc of the gospel is that Jesus satisfies the wrath of God because there is going to be the wrath of the Lamb that will ultimately be poured out in perfect justice on a world that has rejected God. The gospel loses its appeal of redemption if there's no justice in the universe. And there is a lawgiver, and it's God. And he's not under his law. Understand this. God is not compelled to do justice because a law is above him. He does justice because the law expresses his character. The law that he gave expresses God's heart and his mind about what he believes and what he knows the world should be. And God will judge righteously in the earth. There is a certainty of judgment. For those in this time and at this moment, there's a nuance here. Because there is a judgment that God brings upon the world in which those who have rejected Christ, it tells us in John chapter 3, they're under damnation. There's condemnation. There's judgment to final judgment. Scriptures call this the second death. When someone in this life dies having rejected Jesus as the only means of salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And those who reject the only way to the Father upon leaving this life, if they have rejected Jesus Christ, they experience the second death in which there is a final judgment and a cutting off from God forever. It's a horrifying spectacle. And part of the reason why I bring this up is because the gospel light shines into this dark reality. That God in his infinite grace has laid his life down on the path to destruction and said, if you do destroy your own life, it'll be because you have literally stepped over the body that I have laid down to prevent it. You know the old saying, over my dead body? Jesus Christ literally laid his life down and said, if you perish in eternal separation from the Father, it'll be because you have walked over my dead body. Jesus said, over my dead body. God does not desire, hear me from Peter, that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. And Peter says, now be careful because here's the thing and here's the trap. Because God's hand of judgment is stayed for a long time, we begin to believe his lack of evidence of judgment is either his indifference or his approval. And we think, oh, God doesn't really care. God cares. He's long-suffering. We prayed that and we exalted in God's character of long-suffering this morning because he desires that we would come 
to repentance. It tells us in Ezekiel, who actually was a contemporary of Jeremiah, prophesying to those who had gone into captivity. And Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 23 that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God's not rejoicing to bring judgment, but judgment is certain. The wages of sin is death. Sin is death. Sin produces death. Do we understand, church, do we understand this morning the magnitude of our sin before God? Do we understand that when we sin, we have done something that is so horribly offensive to the God who is in heaven right now in which the angels and the angelic beings are around his throne saying, holy, holy, holy. One holy wasn't enough to describe the degree of his holiness. It tells us his eyes burn like flames of fire and no impure thing can stand in his presence. Our sin was the thing that compelled God in his compassion to offer his son who willfully died. God hates it. And God will ultimately bring justice against it. For those who have rejected Christ completely, that judgment is final and there's an eternal separation from God forever and ever and ever. And so the gospel must be preached. And so to you this morning, if you are here this morning and perhaps you've been around church a little or maybe you haven't, I'm here to tell you that if you are honest with yourself before God, you would probably agree that you're not perfect that, yeah, I've done some things. Well, those imperfections have put you under judgment. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus offers you his redemption and his forgiveness if you will repent and confess and believe. And so if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and this morning the sin in your life is agitating you, and you know that you're not quite right with God, and maybe in a little small way there's a little beep going off in your spirit as you sense the warning of God saying, be careful. You don't know the day or the hour. You don't know when your last breath will be. Don't gamble with eternity, man. Don't play games with forever and ever. Consider yourself before God. And so Jeremiah comes onto the scene and he's proclaiming this message of imminent judgment. Because if you'll think with me here in chapter 5 of Jeremiah, God says three things. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 7, he says, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. Jeremiah 5 9, God says, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Jeremiah 5 29. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? God's asking a rhetorical question of Jeremiah, appealing to his own character. And God's saying, I'm holy. I'm just. I'm obligated because of who I am to address the sin that's prevalent. So my second point this morning is, what was the condition of the people? What was the state of the nation? There's three characteristics that I'm going to draw out to you. They are pronounced in, in this passage. There are three things that God is directly responding to. You. The first is that the people were horrendously selfish. Okay? Selfishness had gripped the people. Look with me in chapter 5, verses 26 through 28. Jeremiah 5, 26 through 28. God is looking down from heaven, his holiness and his justice and evaluation of the people, and he's saying, I have to bring judgment because their unrepentant sin has come before me and they have not heeded my warning time and time and time again. And so in Jeremiah 5, 26 through 28, God says, For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers, lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Look with me, chapter 6, verse 13. God again, declaring through the mouth of the prophet, he says, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone is greedy deals falsely. 
understand on both axes of society, from high from power to lowest rung, and from every social and economic status, strata, whatever you want to call it, on every dissection of the nation, God said from the least to the greatest, rich, poor, they are consumed for unjust gain. Everyone is greedy. He tells us there in chapter 5 that they are like a, a, a cage full of birds, tightly packed, many. And they're, again, their goal, their whole purpose is that they have no bounds in their deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. Selfishness was at the root of society. Selfishness. They were driven by self-interest above all. Paul warned Timothy, and he said, now be, be careful. The love of money is the root of evil. And if you pursue it, it'll pierce your, your soul through with many sorrows. God doesn't condemn gain. He doesn't contend prosperity, particularly in this passage. He calls it unjust gain. And gain as the result of oppression or evil business practices. And God is looking at his people and he's saying they have, from top to bottom, made their whole goal in life personal advancement. If it means I have to crush others, oppress others, defraud others, cheat, lie, steal, kill to get there, I'm going to get there. It's all about me, myself, and I. They're pursuing their own interests. Selfishness was at the root, as evidenced by the way they were treating one another. Secondly, look with me, another distinct feature. Chapter 5, verse 3. O oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Look with me, 5, 23 and 24. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. 6, 28, look with me. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. First, there's a selfishness deeply rooted across all spectrums of society. Secondly, there's a stubbornness. They're selfish and they're stubborn. God says, over and over, I have sought to redirect you, to course correct, say, hey, you're going the wrong way. Repent, come back, turn. The beeps are going off in the, in the cockpit, and these people are like, nope, nope, nope. God sends one prophet. They hate the prophet. They cast him out. God sends another prophet. They persecute him and drive him away. God sends a third. They kill him. They shoot the messenger because they didn't like the message. And over and over, God says they are hardening themselves and they're entrenching themselves in their sinfulness. Lastly, the progression of selfishness, unrepented of, it produces a stubbornness. And then lastly, it produces a shamelessness. Look, 6.15. Were they ashamed when they committed these abominations? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. The certainty of God's judgment and the cause of it is because the people were selfish. They were stubborn. And ultimately, they were shameless. That which used to cause people embarrassment no longer affects them. Think about your own life, okay? Stepping back from a national macro level, think about it on a personal basis. There's something in your life, perhaps some sin issue, some area where you are just not walking in obedience and you've been warned and you've been challenged and you've sort of resisted. You've stubbornly persisted in doing this thing. And eventually, you harden yourself to conviction. You cease to be less responsive to the call of warning. It affects you less. You've heard it and you've heard it and in fact, you've heard it so many times that now you're just deaf to it. And what used to be something that you would not want to be known, 
what if you did it, you would be ashamed of yourself and you would want to hide it and conceal it so that nobody else would find out. And your, your, your sensitivity to this is a bad, shameful thing, eventually the hardness becomes so great that you become shameless. You just don't even care. You're just like, ah, I don't care if you find out. I don't care if somebody knows. In fact, it's not even that bad. It's not even that big a deal. That which used to be considered uh, a shame is now no longer even causing someone to blush. If they get found out, they don't care. If they say it in front of mom and dad, in front of that person that they know loves the Lord, it doesn't matter. This is the arc of a nation and of an individual who has reached the precipice of judgment. Deeply rooted at the core of who and what they are is a self-interest. God is not in all their thoughts. They don't want to fear him. They don't want to walk with him. They don't want to honor him. As it says, they weren't asking those questions. It was all about self. And then warned in God's grace persistently, they reject the warning. Convicted in their heart, they're unmoved. In fact, in those very, very important moments of decision, when you feel conviction, and when I feel conviction, we make a decision in that moment to either become a more heavenly or a more hellish creature. And these people persisted in their sinfulness to the degree that they were so hard. Jeremiah says, your faces are like rock. You're, unsens- you're insensitive. You're unmoving. It doesn't matter. And ultimately, that stubbornness produces a shamelessness. You don't even care. You're not even embarrassed anymore. You flaunt it. Something that you're almost proud of. And God's looking on and he's saying, I have warned you. And I have warned you, and you have not listened. There's a fourth thing that happens when these other three conditions are present in a life. When there's a selfishness, then a stubbornness, ultimately a shamelessness. There's a fourth thing that happens. If you look with me in Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. It says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads, and look and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. He says, I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. And then if you would, just look back to verse 10 and here's why they said these things. Jeremiah says, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Why? The word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Selfish, stubborn, shamelessly sinful. And then fourthly, they scorned the word of God. It was like a loathsome thing to them. They loathed it. They hated it. It was irritating. You ever have that moment at like early morning? I don't know, how, I don't know when you guys wake up. Probably you all go to bed when I am waking up based on your normal life as college students. But for normal people who live a real life... You go to bed at a decent hour and you wake up early. You have that, you have that moment in, in like that transitional phase before you're fully awake but you're not totally sleeping where you're dreaming and your alarm, your actual alarm in your room is going off but in your dream it's like something else. And like you're, I don't know, am I losing you here? You guys have that experience where like things that are happening in your home are like in your dream and you're like you're half awake, you're half asleep and you're, you're trying to orient yourself, and then all of a sudden you, you, know, you, you come out of it. And, and then when you realize that it is your actual alarm, how do you feel about it? Well, you hate it because you enjoyed your sleep. Like, the sleep was great. You know, it's like people, people smash the alarm clocks, right? It's irritating. It's like, man, that was a good dream. Like, I was Superman, you know? Like, you have those dreams where, like, you feel like you're in control and you're getting everything that you want in life, and it's awesome. And then you get snapped back to reality. Do you take pleasure in the word of God? Do you take pleasure in the word of God? Or is the word of God an object of scorn to you because it's a standing rebuke of your life? The people of God had come to hate God's word because it was a standing rebuke to what they truly valued. They wanted to be selfish. In fact, they wanted to sin. And they loved their sin. They didn't want to give it up. And they didn't want to repent. And in fact, they greatly enjoyed it. And so they continued to resist. They continued to snooze the alarm button and it just stopped going off. It just stopped going off. 
And God says it's going to happen. And so the certainty of God's judgment, responding to the condition of the people. By way of application here this morning, there's two things I want to draw out. First, because I'm preaching to God's people in God's house. And I don't like to assume, but I'm going to believe that the majority of you are here because Christ is truly present in your life. You've put your faith and your trust in him. And so the judgment we're speaking of, the second death judgment, you've already passed from death to life. That's not true for you. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You're sealed for eternity and God is building a place for you. And so the judgment of the second death is not true for you. That's why you've escaped the wrath to come, right? First Thessalonians 5. But there is a judgment that Paul speaks of in Corinthians, which is a judgment of purification, where that which your life was about and consisted of will be revealed in the final days. And here's my concern, because here's what's true about the people of God. And it's been a while since we went through earlier chapters of Jeremiah, but there was a prevalent theme in chapters 1 through 4. And the theme was that the people were outwardly religious, but inwardly completely God-hating, okay? So, so if, I, if I could step back for a minute and say basically what you had here is in the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, you had Josiah as a king. You can cross-reference this in Kings and Chronicles. Josiah finds the ancient scrolls, and there's an outward external revival of what would appear to be God-honoring practice, a renewal of temple worship, some removal of idolatry, some expression of a national turning back to God. In, in a in an application to the modern age, it may be those in our country here in America who would say, we need to get back to what we used to be as a country. But let's get back to how it, you know, it was. And we may highlight certain things that we think express a better national stance about certain political issues or moral issues of our day. And so we may be happy about that. For example, and I'm not saying this would be a bad thing, but if it were true that abortion were no longer allowed, there would be a very large section of the Christian movement that would applaud this reality. It's like, that's great. Abortion is no longer legal. You could say that that's true. But the question I have for you is, has the fact that that is no longer legal actually changed the heart of anybody who may have ever wanted to get one? Because what's happening is outwardly th certain things are changing and positioning themselves to be outwardly great, but underneath the surface, the heart is unchanged. And so here's my concern. If you've come to church for any length of time or read the Bible for any amount of time, there is a massive danger to you and I that is not true for someone outside the church. The danger for us is in chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. It's a little bit hidden, but I think we'll find it. This is coming off of God saying, look, I'm bringing disaster, the fruit of their devices, verse 19, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. Notice verse 20, God speaking through Jeremiah, he says to the people, what use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. What is God saying in that moment, church? What's he saying? What's Jeremiah communicating? Here's what he's communicating. I'm going to summarize this for us. You come to church on Sunday morning. You put some money in the box. You sing the songs when the lights are low. And then you walk out the door, and you are no different. You hear the word of God, and you say, yeah, that's true. Sin is sin. The pastor's right. The word of God says this. And you give a moral assent. You, intellectually, you agree. And then you walk out the door, and I walk out the door, and I'm no different. God's like, I'm not interested in one and a half hours of your life. I'm interested in all of your life, including the one and a half you give me on Sunday. Church, here's the concern I have. The more, the more frequently we live under warning of the word and the less we change in response to it, the harder our heart will become and we won't even know it. We'll deceive ourselves. What does James say? Hey, now be careful. Don't fool yourself because what does James say? Don't just be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer also. 
If you ignore the warning in the cockpit for 40 years and you never evaluate your life and respond in an act of repentance, which we're going to explore next, what happens is you implicitly harden yourself even though you're sitting in the most perfect place to be changed. In this very moment, God is like, today's the day of salvation for you. My word will go forth and be declared, and it is going to be, as Jeremiah says, of his ministry like a hot fire, and it's going to come bringing purifying heat to your life, seeking to expose the impurities of the inner man so that you might be sanctified and transformed. But if you hear all these things, you go, yeah, that's true. Yep, that's right. I need to be a better follower of Jesus, and I, I really should, when I'm convicted, respond in obedience And then you walk out the door, and if I were to walk out the door in literally no change, then we become something that God abhors. Because God's like, you're a hypocrite, man. That's not what I desire. You bring me worship, and it is empty. Because worship is an expression of an obedient life. If you live in sin Monday through Saturday night, and you walk in the doors on Sunday and think singing a couple songs to Jesus is going to solve it, you're wrong. The fruit of our lips is a life of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, sing songs. No, he said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Church, our obedience is our worship. And so God says, stop with the empty sacrifices. Stop with the empty music. Stop playing the church game. Stop celebrating certain victories on the national level and start honoring me from the inside out with your whole heart. That's what God's after, and that's why he brings Jeremiah. Now understand this, Jeremiah's ministry was completely hated. Nobody liked this guy. Nobody liked this guy, and here's what's true. Even here this morning, there is a part of me, and I was hanging out with with Andrew and and Lucas on Friday. We were kind of talking about this a little bit. There's a part of me that didn't want to preach this message. I'm not even going to lie to you. I sit back, and I'm like, man, I think about the people who come to church here, and I'm like, the ones that I know well, I'm like, they're really sincere followers of Jesus. They want to do what God wants them to do in life. And they got a lot of like really difficult, challenging things going on. And then they come to church looking to be encouraged with a word of grace. And I'm going to stand up here and just be like, judgment, destruction, God's going to you know, wreck everything. And it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel very um, encouraging. I'm not even going to lie. There's a part of me that's like, man, this is unpleasant. Imagine being Jeremiah and you're, God's like, hey, I want you to pronounce national destruction on all the people that you actually love. Like, I want you to stand up and tell everybody, hey, God's going to destroy our country. It'd be like me being like, hey, Canada's going to invade and take over America. We're all like, mm, not enough maple syrup to do that. <laughs> Eat a little bit more maple syrup. You know what's interesting? Chapter 5, verse 31, verse 30 and 31, it says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their own direction, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Man, my heart sank. Because there's a lot of people who profess to declare the word of God who are out here downplaying sin and treating it like it's not as bad as it really is. And they're telling everyone, hey, it's not that big a deal, man. God's not. God's not going to do anything about that. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's a light thing. It's a small thing. The prophet and the priest not addressing the real root issues well, not calling people to a life of repentance, but telling people, hey, man, God's not going to judge you. God's not going to bring any kind of resistance to you. Everything's fine. And my people love to have it so. What did Paul tell Timothy? In the last days, people are going to have itching ears. They're going to want to be entertained. They're going to want to be tickled to death. They're going to want to come to church and hear some good funny jokes and have a good time and eat some food and drink some coffee, which is actually good, but it can also, you know, not be the primary focus maybe. And they're going to want to hear nice things, that life's okay. And they don't have to repent. They don't have to do the hard work of change. And that God's pleased no matter what. And everything's fine. And there's a bunch of prophets and priests out there saying this because you know what that means? They have a big church. And they get a lot of nice money and they have a nice situation going. And why say hard things that upset the apple cart and make people uncomfortable? That's an unpleasant reality. But man, God bless you. You're here this morning. You didn't know I was preaching. Well, maybe you did. And you came anyway. But you came because God's drawing you. Because here's what I've discovered. 
Love warns. Love warns people. Love corrects people. The scriptures tell us that God chastens those whom he loves. He warns those whom he cares about. And I'll tell you what, church, better to stumble and fall on the path to destruction than make it all the way. Better to have a circumstance come up by God's sovereign hand that causes you to be exposed or found out or humbled so that in that moment of brokenness, your heart is soft and you repent than to stubbornly run headlong into your own demise. God uses circumstances to break you. God uses the judgment of a nation to break the nation. Think about your life. Nothing is by accident. We were having a conversation. Andrew shared with me a really great story. I'm not going to steal his story. But he was just sharing a story of of a, a ministry connection he had back in Dallas, Texas, where somebody fervently praying and seeking God was stirred of the Holy Spirit to go do something that he would have unpredictably and never thought to do. And in the process of doing so, he discovered two of the people in his school of ministry living in sin. And he exposed them. In that moment, horrifying. Those people were probably embarrassed beyond embarrassed. But oh, the mercy of God that it would be true now instead of never at all. That's love. That's grace. And so God uses circumstance if you don't listen to the warning. If you continue, God would rather have something cause you to fall than to continue headlong in a path of destruction. If God ever were to give you an opportunity to either watch over kids or have kids of your own, you will fully understand this principle. If one of my little ones, which has happened a few times, go blitzing down the driveway towards the road, and they they will, I would rather tackle them in the driveway than have them run into the street and be dead. It's not going to feel good. They're not going to like getting tackled by dad. Now, if Aiden runs and I tackle him, I mean, I probably won't be able to catch Aiden at this point. <laughs> but if the little ones run, I still might be able to catch him. God's calling to you. And he's inviting you to repent. Over and over again, Jeremiah was calling them to repent. What is repentance, by the way? I don't want to assume that you understand this idea. Is repentance the same thing as forgiveness? No. Can you be forgiven without repenting? Can you be reconciled to God without repentance? I would argue you cannot. And here's why. Reconciliation, or I'm an accountant, reconciliation is bringing things into balance. Right? Amos 3.3, very famous scripture. What does it say? How can two walk together unless they agree? How can you walk with God and yet at the same time walk in sin? God does not go that way. You cannot walk with God and unrepentingly sin in your life. There must be a progression of change. And God will seek to bring the change over and over and over again before it's too late. He'll use circumstances. He'll use people in your life to caution you, to warn you. And my my warning to you is don't harden your heart. When you're convicted of sin, in that moment, stop what you're doing and respond. And that's how I want to close my sermon this morning. If you would, look at chapter 6 with me. There's four things I want us to kind of leave with here. Here's the four things. Chapter 6, 16, 17. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. There's four things there that I want us to focus on. First, he says to the people, stand. Seems like a simple thing, but it's super important because standing means you're not what? You're not sitting. That's good. That's, that's one correct answer. There's actually a, a multi-choice. There's more than one right answer to this question. Standing can mean you're not also moving. Where is he standing by? Ro- what do you do on roads? You, 
You travel, you move, right? You're going somewhere. The prophet's like, yo, people, people of God, pause, pause everybody. The instruments in the cockpit are freaking out because you're going the wrong way. I want you to stop the way you're going and stand still. I insert the word still. Jeremiah's like, yo, stand still. Stop going the way you're going. And he uses the word roads in the plural, which means there's multiple choices to be made there. There could be one, there could be three. For the simplicity of it all, let's just say there's two. Jesus used a two-road analogy. He said, hey, broad's the way that leads to destruction. A lot of people find that way. Really narrow and small is the way that leads to life everlasting. Very few people find that. So Jesus uses a two-road analogy. So I'm going to borrow Jesus' two-road analogy. And we'll say that Jesus, through the prophet, is saying, hey, stand by these roads and stand still and just take a moment. Stop moving. Your life is busy, right? Your life's busy? If you're too busy to stand still, you're too busy. Second thing he says is when you're standing, don't just like, you know, do nothing. He says, stand still and take an action. Look. What is looking? That's about gaining perspective. He says, hey, stop and gain some perspective, man. When you are going somewhere you haven't been and you're out there on the road, you know what a really smart thing to do is? Look a little bit further down the road to see if it's going where you want to go. That's a little, little trivia tip. Stand still and take a look. If you were to step back and think about your own life, it's very simple what I'm trying to do here, right? Stop, church, Christian, follower of Jesus, and evaluate. Take a look at your life. Where are you going? Where are your typical habits and choices leading you? The direction and the orientation of your heart and mind, where is it bringing you? Perhaps another way to think of it is, what things are going on in your life that are a result of actions that you've sown and now you're reaping? Because whatever you sow, rest assured, that's what you're going to reap. You have strife in your home, you sowed that. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have, you have issues of heart where you have no affections for God, you've sown that into you somewhere, somehow. Take a look, church. Think, stop, stand still, take a look, get some perspective. Look with a heavenly perspective. Let the word of God shine light upon your path. Isn't it Psalm 119, 105? That word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. Let the word of God inform you. Where are you headed? Where are your choices taking you? Thirdly, he says, stand still, look, and ask. The word ask is to inquire. And he calls it the ancient path. Here he's referring to the word of God. Ask for the ancient things, man. Ask for the word of God. Church, I would exhort you. I would encourage you. Do some analysis work before God today. Just take a break, man. You're all super busy, studies, work, activities, all that stuff. I get it. This is pretty important because this life's going to pass and then there's a forever and an ever. So think about where you're going from an eternal perspective and say, Lord, and be like David who in Psalm 51 said, God, you know, teach me and show me, instruct me in your way, in the everlasting way. Man, if you're asking God, Lord, give me wisdom on how to live for you today, that's a good thing to ask. And so this is a reference for the timeless paths of God's word. And then lastly and most importantly, after you've done the standing still, the looking and the asking, you ask because there's an assumption that you'll obey. The assumption is that you're going to do it. That's the assumption. To simply ask for knowledge without seeking to obey it. Is just going to mislead you every time. So church, stand still. Look. Ask or inquire for the ancient paths. Let the word of God lead you. And then lastly, walk in it. Obey. Do it. Do it. If it's a hard thing, if it's a confession issue, humble yourself. Confess. And ultimately, that confession must produce a repentance. Let's close with these few words. Go with me to the New Testament. This is just a general invitation here for us as God's people. <clears throat> in the book of Peter, giving us a perspective as to the narrative of the prophet. Uh, I had it jotted down before I walked up here. And then, of course, I blank out. Second Peter chapter three, thank you, verse nine. Second Peter three nine. Really well known passage. 
just for our edification here as we close this morning, here's the deal, man. Jeremiah is the weeping voice of a heartbroken prophet communicating to the people what God has given him to say. It's a hard ministry because it's a ministry of repentance. Over and over again, he emphasizes that. And yet over that 40-year ministry, I think what Peter communicates here is true in macro and is true for an individual. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Understand contextually that he's talking about imminent judgment. All the preceding verses were about God's examples of judgment in the Old Testament. So God will fulfill that promise. But in his delay, in his slowness to act, he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the work of God in the heart of a man. If this morning you feel grief in your spirit because something is bothering you or troubling you, let that drive you to repentance. Feeling sorry is not repentance. Feeling sorry is feeling sorry. Repentance is saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. And by the grace of God, I won't. And ultimately, God is desiring that all should reach this place of turning back. This morning, uh, as I mentioned before, I don't know if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ at all. I don't know if you're a child of God. But I have the burden of the word of God to be faithful to what it says to you if you're not. Which is that if you have rejected Jesus and you have not responded to his invitation to turn to him, to leave behind the sinfulness of your past life and to be made new by his spirit, then I caution you that if you persist in that path and you leave this earth without ever, ever having confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, you'll experience the second death and you'll be eternally separated from God forever. And it need not be so. God is slow to bring judgment that you might reach this moment of repentance. And then secondly, if you've already made that confession of faith and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, yet your life needs some course correction because you're going in a way that's going to wound and hurt you, sin that's unrepented, that's festering under the surface, and you come to church and everything looks so nice, and the people in your row think you're so saintly, and then you're just a little devil at home, then God's word to you is woe to you. Don't harden yourself under this message because if you don't repent now, it doesn't get easier tomorrow. It gets harder because you're less sensitive to conviction. And so you're in the house of God. Grace is here this morning. It's repentance that God draws you. And so if you need to dress things in your life, if you need to come clean on issues, there's brothers and sisters here who love you enough to be there for you. And that's it, man. That's all I got. Let's stand and pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word. Jesus, it's uh, an Old Testament passage uh, with new present-day application. God, I pray for us this morning, God, as your people, tells us in Titus that your grace was revealed that you might purify to yourself a people zealous unto good works. God, purity was a goal of yours when you died on the cross for us. So Lord, I pray that we would be holy. God, I pray that in our hearts and in our lives, we would not resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but we would humbly surrender. Lord, we'd be turned back to you in any way, in any degree that you have been leaning into our lives this morning. And God, I pray that the fruit of these things, that we would find what it promises us in chapter 6, Lord, that we would find the good way where there's rest for our soul and that, God, your blessing would be upon our life. Lord, have your way now as we fellowship. May we stand together as your people and um, encourage one another by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, be blessed.